So we have to look at everything in terms of like a hierarchy of importance, right? So if somebody is in a house that's on fire and you would like to get them out, but it's cold outside, you don't keep them in the house that's on fire because they don't have a jacket. Get them out of the burning house and then worry about the fact that it's cold outside. And that's kind of like the same deal with adherence is people get so caught up in these nuances. It's like the reason all these different diets didn't work for you isn't because they don't work at all. It's because you weren't consistent with it. You didn't stick to it. I'm not saying that in a victim shaming sort of way. What I'm saying is we hear all the time somebody will say, like you'll hear the following. I tried every different diet and then I tried keto and it felt like I wasn't even dieting and it just was easy, right? And you'll hear people that say that about time-restricted eating. And you'll hear people that say that about flexible dieting or, you know, any other diet under the sun. So if you want to lose fat, you have to use some form of restriction. But you as the individual should probably select the form of restriction that feels the least restrictive to you as an individual. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guests are Lane Norton and Simon Hill. Simon and Lane were on the show earlier this year and has been one of the most popular episodes, so I thought I would get them back on to keep the discussion going. I will link our first episode in the show notes, and I highly encourage y'all to give it a listen. If you aren't familiar with Lane, Lane Norton, also known as BioLane, is an entrepreneur, he's a physique coach, a bodybuilder, and a powerlifter. Alongside his success as a competitor, Lane has his PhD in nutrition science and is one of the most respected voices in the health and nutrition space. For those of you who aren't familiar with Simon, Simon Hill is a nutritionist and a physiotherapist. He has his master's degree in nutrition science, and he's on a mission to help people make informed lifestyle choices. His podcast, The Proof of Simon Hill, extends beyond nutrition to other crucial lifestyle factors that impact our well-being. This episode, I believe, is the longest one I've done yet. And so I broke it down into two parts. In this first part, we cover protein quality, why adherence matters, and the nuances of the highly debated calories in, calories out approach, as well as are all calories created equal and more. In the second part, which will be released on Thursday, we cover insulin, insulin resistance, exercise, longevity, and gut health. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Simon Hill and Lane Norton to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Lane, Simon, welcome back to the podcast. What's up, Doug? Thanks for having us. Thanks, Doug. Pleasure to be here, mate. I'm excited. This has been one of the most popular downloaded episodes of the podcast so far, and people were kind of chomping at the bit to hear part two, and I said I'd be more than happy to try to get this back together. And I think like a good place for us to start is we ended our last chat discussing protein, protein quality. And wanted to circle back on this. And I guess in both of your opinions, and whoever wants to can start, but when assessing a food for its protein quality, like what do you look for? And then on top of that, like is plant protein like less digestible? 
I can jump in and and I'll kind of add my thoughts as to uh, how I think about this and also where I think sometimes context really matters, Doug. So, and I think that's probably one of the first things to establish here is that if we're assessing the kind of uh, utility of a protein source with regards to human health, it does really matter. Are we talking about someone in a Western population who has a, a nice diverse range of foods to select from? and incorporate into their diet? Or are we talking about someone in a developing country who has food insecurity and may be requiring or maybe getting most of their protein from one or two sources of food? So that's the first thing I would kind of throw out there and and I'll walk through why that's important. But with regards to looking at a, a protein, one of the first things that people will think about is the ratio of essential amino acids and the amount of those essential amino acids and are they in a ratio that would help someone meet their daily requirement for those essential amino acids. And when I say essential amino acids, most people will be familiar with the fact that there are nine essential amino acids. These are essentially the building blocks of protein that your body cannot synthesize. So you have to get them through food somehow. And the protein scoring systems that are often used in in the literature and and cited, and and you'll see them cited online as well, the DAS and the the PDCAS, these scoring systems really look at a, a combination of two things. One is how digestible is that protein? And we can go into how that's measured because that is a little bit different in those two scoring systems. One is looking at fecal digestibility. The other is looking at ileal digestibility. And then also these scoring systems consider what we call the limiting amino acid. And I don't want to go too far into the weeds because the actual calculation of these, and Lane will be familiar with that, and looking at a reference protein and whatnot, I think it's kind of somewhat irrelevant. I just want to make two points really clear here. One is that I do believe that these scoring systems do have some great utility, Doug, but we need to be aware of some of their limitations as well. And when we're considering plant protein, one of my main concerns with these systems and the studies to date, I think we can get better. I would dare say that most listeners and people that are kind of across this conversation and looking at people talk about protein quality online, probably think that we have studies that have taken a whole suite of plant proteins. Think about all the common ones all the different types of legumes and tofu and tempeh and different types of grains and whatnot and have prepared them as you and I would eat them. So let's say if I'm going to have rice, I'm not going to eat that in its dried raw form. I am going to soak it and cook it. Same with legumes. And and this breaks down trypsin inhibitors that frees up protein to actually be available, but also breaks down other components within these plant foods like phytates and various compounds that could reduce the protein availability. (laughs) I think most people would assume, Doug, that there are these lots of studies done that have looked at what is the digestibility of protein in these plant foods when you do prepare them properly? And also have looked at this in human models, not just rat models or pig models. Pig models are definitely better than rat models for this 100%. But 
I think people might be a little bit shocked to say that, well, actually, there's very little data. There is some human data out there, and there is certainly some studies that have looked at properly prepared plant proteins, but a lot of it is raw plant protein. And my issue with this is it it probably overestimates the difference in terms of availability between animal and plant protein. I think there is a difference. There's a review paper by Mariotti. I can share it, Doug. And within that paper, they explicitly say that the more precise data collected so far in humans that is assessing allele nitrogen digestibility has shown that the differences in digestibility between plant and animal protein sources are only a few percent. Now, I will add a caveat to that and say that, again, that that's based off very little data. They're, they're, they're not looking at 10, 20, 30 different types of plant protein. It's only a handful. So the point that I want to make clear is that we actually need quite a bit more research there that's looking at properly prepared plant proteins in pig or human models, ideally, and getting a better idea as to the difference in digestibility. And then the second point that I would just make about these scores when you see them shared on social media is that there is a significant influence in the score based on the limiting amino acid. And essentially what a limiting amino acid means is if I was to eat just that food, let's say I just ate rice for all of my calories, well, I would actually not meet my daily requirement for lysine. And so, you know, that wouldn't be a good idea. It's important to to kind of recognize that those scores, the DS and the PDCAS, are considering this limiting amino acid, which really is only going to be relevant in a scenario where you're getting all of your protein from one source. So overall, when I look at the current literature and this conversation around protein quality, I probably tend to think that the differences in terms of digestibility and overall quality are smaller and and really matter far less than people are making out. And I think what's more important is the total amount of protein that we're consuming. And if we're coming back to this idea of building muscle and getting strong and whatnot, then prioritizing and putting more attention focused on the type of training we're doing and actually making sure that we have the right stimulus there. I'm going to jump in and I think Simon did a great job of laying out like the different kind of objective measures of protein quality. So I'll, I'll just add where I think it's, I'm not going to rehash what he already talked about, but I'll add where I feel like there's some value. The first thing is, as he pointed out, like are plant proteins less bioavailable or lower quality than animal proteins? It's probably going to depend honestly on the animal protein and then the plant protein as well, right? So as he mentioned, like when you cook various different sources of plant proteins, it does become more bioavailable. The research we have on that's really limited, so we don't know a bunch of different specific plant proteins. We do know like probably much like dietary carbohydrate in fibrous plant material, it's not always accessible to enzymatic digestion. And so it is very possible that especially like some of the more fibrous plant sources of protein that are bound up in insoluble fiber. Those particular proteins may not be accessible to digestive enzymes and it may be uh, therefore less digestible and able to be assimilated. But again, until that's actually those specific experiments are run, it's hard to tell. I think this really only becomes a problem at 
lower to moderate protein intakes. If somebody's taking in a high amount of protein overall, the higher your total protein gets, the less and less protein quality matters. And actually that was kind of directly shown in my PhD thesis that we were able to show, to be frank, so my PhD research was in rats, but the rat is actually a really great model for protein metabolism. Pig is a better model for digestion, but as far as like the metabolism, once protein is in circulation, the rat model actually tends to be quite good. And so we looked at like feeding different levels of wheat and whey protein. And what we found is like at 10% of calories from wheat and whey, there was a really big difference in muscle protein synthesis. At 20%, that percentage got a little bit narrower, but was still significantly different. At 30% of total calories, there was no difference, no statistical difference anyway. And that's because you're starting to get over that threshold to get enough essential amino acids and enough leucine to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now, when it comes to protein quality, what do I look for? Digestibility is one, obviously, because if you're not getting the protein into circulation, then it's not gonna have the effect you want. That is probably, has less direct research on it than the next point, which is the amino acid composition of said protein. So we know that essential amino acids are important. We know that when it comes to essential amino acids, particularly leucine appears to be the amino acid that stimulates directly muscle protein synthesis. And again, my PhD thesis was looking at the leucine content of different proteins and how that affected protein synthesis in muscle at equal amounts of total protein intake. And once again, at like 15% of daily calories, we looked at wheat, soy, egg, and whey, and found that basically wheat and soy at that level of intake were not able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, whereas egg and whey did. Now again, we were, based on some regression analysis, we were about, about able to tie about 70% of that protein synthetic response to the leucine content of those sources. Now that being said, if you take wheat or soy and get them high enough in terms of total amount, you'll get the same response. So as a take-home message, where I think this becomes much more important, is not the people who are eating like, especially omnivores who are eating mixed protein sources and say, well, should I count my plant proteins towards you know, my total protein intake? Yes, because you're still eating a bunch of other very digestible, high essential amino acid quality sources of protein. If you're somebody who's eating a completely plant-based or you know vegan style diet where you're not having any animal products whatsoever, it can become a little bit trickier, especially if you're doing some sort of caloric restriction because now your protein sources tend to have extra calories along with them in terms of carbohydrate or fats if you know if you consider peanut butter a protein source, which I don't. When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach further, and go the extra mile. The relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed up recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips, 
after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Again, that's insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Take advantage of this great deal. Now back to the show. So for them, if you're looking to maximize muscle building, it can get to the point where it becomes a bit untenable to do it without kind of an isolated source of protein like a soy isolate or a rice protein isolate or whatever have you. Simply because it's difficult to get that total amount of protein with a lower amount of calories. But if we're talking about people, like let's take me for example, who I'm eating mixed sources of protein and I'm eating over 200 grams of it a day and I weigh 207 pounds or you know about 94 kilos, it really doesn't matter. Even if I, like, even if I ate nothing but plant protein sources at this level of protein intake, I kind of doubt it would matter, to be honest. So I think when it comes to protein quality, it's digestibility, which on balance, I would say that animal sources of protein are more digestible than plant sources of protein. How much more is up for debate, like Simon said. Simon says. There you go. Um, <laughs> but, but in general, yes, animal sources are more digestible than plant sources. You probably could maybe find some specific plant sources that may be as digestible as certain animal sources. Again, we just unfortunately don't have a lot of data on this stuff as much as people would like. Uh, and a lot of it is in pig models, as, as, uh, as Simon alluded to. And then also looking at the essential amino acid content. So like, for example, there are plant sources of protein that actually have like isolated plant sources that actually have good amino, essential amino acid profiles and leucine content. Like potato protein isolate actually has a really great essential amino acid profile. It's just really hard to find. It tastes terrible in general. Then there's some other ones like rice and soy and pea. Pea and rice are limiting in certain amino acids. Soy is a little bit more balanced. But they've got about the same leucine content, right around 8%, which is close to a lot of uh, animal sources like beef and chicken and fish. And then you've got corn, which is actually 12% leucine, but it's also like frank deficient in a couple of other amino acids. So again, if you're, if you're going to use isolated sources of plant proteins and you're somebody who's looking to maximize muscle building, you know, if you're worried about it, then just combine a couple of different sources of plant protein. Like you can pretty much combine soy and just about any other source of protein and be good to go. So I think it's really mostly a conversation needs to be like the hand wringing I see out there from people who are eating animal protein and plant protein and they're eating enough total protein. It's really a non-issue. That's a good point that that Lane brings up. And I think it also comes back to how we review studies. So if definitely, if you look at most studies, if you were to compare just a, a straight up animal protein to a straight up plant protein and looking at muscle protein synthesis, for example, you would expect to see the animal protein do better. Just broadly speaking, you know, of course there are different animal and different plant proteins, but broadly speaking, based on the amino acid profiles, but we don't eat like that. I know that I'm not sitting down just eating one food. So I would like to see more studies looking at mixed meal effects. And also just a reminder that we probably not only do we need more data to look at the more specific differences in digestibility between animal and plant proteins, Doug, but 
also we need to to better understand how clinically meaningful this actually is. So if there is a small difference in digestibility and in muscle protein synthesis, how does that translate over to A, to mixed meals? And then how does that translate over to outcomes that we actually really care about? And I would agree with Lane that once you get to a very high protein intake, we're probably starting to see less differences or undetectable differences in terms of some of the outcomes we care about. One area, and I think we might have spoken about this, is when I look at the research looking at protein intake in different populations, I think, and Lane can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the average American eating an omnivorous diet consumes about 1.3 or 1.4 grams per kilogram. Somewhere around there, whereas vegetarian and vegan populations, it's more around that 1 to 1.1 gram per kilogram. Depends on the cohort you look at. But I'd be interested to understand that as someone ages and holding on to muscle tissue becomes increasingly important, as does bone density, is there a detectable difference, a clinically meaningful difference at that level of protein intake? And we might find that protein quality becomes more important, for example, in a population like that. Yeah, I think one of the other things I want to point out too is that this kind of research, especially if you're looking at like muscle mass or lean mass as an endpoint, it is really hard to get good data on this. Like it's really hard. And I know some people will bring up like you'll see these eight week studies done looking at lean mass they say oh they show no difference and i'm like yeah but it's eight weeks and lean mass takes a really long time especially if we're talking about skeletal muscle it can take a long time to see differences and i don't know if it's ever a reasonable expectation to have like you know a multi-year randomized control trial where we're looking at these things so we're always going to be kind of like trying to piece together you know, some of this mechanistic data with some of this human outcome data. But I think really this conversation is had in the margins in terms of like, who, what is the population we're looking for, right? So if we're looking at, all right, we're worried about like just, you know, overall health and whatnot. Okay, 1.2 to 1.6 for people who aren't, you know, getting up there in age per kilo of body weight, probably fine. You know, if you're talking about like trying to absolutely maximize somebody's muscle mass, okay, maybe you play on the you know safer end of 1.6 to 2.4, you know, and I, I would say like if you're somebody who really wants to maximize that, well, then err towards the, you know, the outlier side of 2.4 grams per kilo. And then as we get, you, somebody mentioned like getting people up in age, you know, we do know that it's really interesting. Actually, I was going back over this data today for doing some research or sorry, some studying for a podcast, another podcast I'm going to have. But the sarcopenic response in elderly where we see losses of muscle mass is not due to any changes in basal levels of protein synthesis or degradation. It actually appears to be anabolic resistance in response to individual meals. So they're actually able to show that like the signaling, the like cellular signaling apparatus like mTOR, and P70X6 kinase, these different kinases are involved in initiating muscle protein synthesis, that you need a proportionately bigger amount or greater amount of essential amino acids or protein at a meal in elderly to get a similar response to young. So I do think that as people age, and here's where this, this kind of vortex meets, as people age, 
they probably need to keep this stuff in mind a little bit more and skew more towards higher protein. The difficulty becomes, especially as we enter those like after age 65 populations, they actually tend to become a little bit more protein averse in terms of they don't like the mouthfeel or the like having to chew up meat, you know, those sorts of things. So again, I think this is where like strategies of, you know, protein supplements and whatnot that can really come into play. But unfortunately, again, like a sarcopenic response can be half a percent to 1% of muscle mass decline over a year. If you look at that out over 30 years, that's a massive difference in muscle mass and functional strength. But if you just did a study over eight weeks, are you going to pick up any difference? It's going to be really tough. So I think unfortunately, and this gets back to like just overall nutrition research, it's so difficult to do kind of like high grade research just because of the, the constraints. And that's why, you know, we rely so heavily on cohorts and then animal models because it's just really hard to do good long-term human randomized control trials. In fact, one of the things I, I, I put out a kind of a, a how to read research guide uh, a while back and we had a Venn diagram and it was subject number, duration of study, and uh, level of control, right? So these three circles. If you want all three of those circles to overlap, which is high subject number, a uh, high level of control, and long duration, you have to do animals. It's gonna be almost impossible to do it in humans. Right. I think one of the things that I see just as a trainer who still sees clients a fair amount every single week is adherence. And I know we've kind of touched on that before in that, you know, let's just say the goal is for somebody to get more protein in their diet, but the same person is also having a hard time like eating like any vegetables throughout the day. Like what's the the good first step? Is it to try to get them to eat a bunch of plant protein or is it to get them to eat like piece of chicken or some eggs or something like that. And I think a lot of people that might listen to this are just average person who isn't getting hardly any protein. And it's a, the person sitting at home, it's confused as hell. Like, where do I start? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Because I think adherence plays a big role in this. I mean, it's hard to get somebody who barely eats any vegetables to now just say, all right, I'm going to get a majority amount of my protein from plants. So this is one of the reasons, Doug, why I spend so much time. People always talk like, oh, why do you spend so much time trying to debunk other people? Exactly because of this, because of there's so much confusion. People get frozen because they don't know what to do because they say, well, you know, I know I eat more protein for muscle. But then, you know, this guy says protein activates mTOR and that's going to make me die when I'm 50. So I shouldn't eat protein. I need to eat plants. Because, you know, they say it's good, but then this other guy says that plants have toxins in them, so I shouldn't eat plants. And so, if I could just speak really broadly to people out there, it's not a secret what works in nutrition or what good nutrition looks like, at least in the research literature. It's patterns of eating, and that involves, you know, if you choose to be omnivorous, that involves lean sources of protein, you know, probably, you know, sources of omega-3 fats as well as lots of fruits and vegetables. And if you just start there, that is a really good starting point. And now, Simon, all yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree people get paralyzed, right? But I still do think that people deserve to understand 
what we know about a healthy diet and also what are kind of some of the bigger levers that they can pull. And look, I can say I have a bias towards plant protein, Doug, if you haven't worked it out. And let me explain where this bias comes from. You know, if we look at right now, the leading cause of death is cardiovascular disease. And if we look at current, the average uh, current LDL cholesterol level or APOB level, we know is, is at a level where people are, are laying down atherosclerotic plaque. And we know probably some of the most rigorous evidence that we have with regards to nutrition and, and health is how diet can influence risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And if I look at the typical diet now, that has about 70 or 80% of protein in the diet is coming from animal protein. The remainder is coming from plant protein in Western populations. It depends on the, the cohort you look at. I feel one of the biggest levers that someone can pull is swapping some calories from animal protein for plant protein. And what happens when you do this is you lower saturated fat in the diet and you increase fiber at the same time, both of which will directly affect your blood lipids and in most circumstances, see people, see someone's APOB level go down, as would swapping saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat, which w could mean eating less red meat and more fatty fish or nuts and seeds, for example. So I understand that there is a paralysis and of course, adherence is everything, Doug, 100%. But I actually think that we should be using the evidence to the best of our ability and then helping people adhere to that as best as possible and starting to, to break down and say, why is adherence an issue? And certainly I'm not dogmatic. I do, I, I side with, with Lane in that there are a lot of different dietary patterns or variations of a dietary pattern that can help someone get good blood lipids and good blood glucose control. And of course, and I think we'll speak about it later, there are, there are lots of different avenues or types of diets that can help someone lose weight. So I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I guess I'm just kind of summarizing my approach to this is that I do believe we have some strong evidence that I like to communicate to people, but then you make a very good point here that adherence is absolutely everything. And I think that's, that's a whole other question is what are the various factors that influence adherence and why do we see in certain studies, we see someone do very well on a low-fat diet, someone does very well on a high-carb diet, and perhaps we'd be better off placing our, our time and energy and even some research looking at adherence and ways to help people adhere to a certain diet for longer when we might have more success. Yeah, there was actually a meta-analysis a while back looking at different popular diets and their effects on fat loss, and I think a few uh, cardiometabolic markers. And basically the takeaway from the study was no particular diet was better than any other diet really for overall health or weight loss. They all tend to have follow the same pattern, which is keto is better in the first three to six months in terms of weight loss, but much of that is probably from body water. So that's a little bit skewed, but there is the possibility that people see some initial quick weight loss and that gets them to buy in and they tend to become more compliant, that sort of thing. That does seem to be a real phenomenon, regardless of type of diet. If you can get some quick weight loss, it appears people kind of buy in. But over 12 months, if you look out, they all kind of follow the same arc. People lose some weight, and then it tends to slowly come back on. 
But when they plotted adherence from individuals in regardless of diet type, I mean, they basically saw a linear effect of adherence on the success of the diet in terms of weight loss, fat loss, and cardiometabolic markers, which kind of speaks to what I've been saying for a long time, which is, you know, all this other talk that we're having is great, but really, if you can't adhere to the diet, it does not matter, right? It's kind of like this discussion about artificial sweeteners where a lot of people are kind of comparing it to water. And it's like, well, that's really the wrong comparison because very few people who drink, who are just used to drinking water go, you know what, I'm going to substitute this water problem I have with artificial sweeteners. They're drinking two or three sugar sweetened beverages a day and saying, well, I'm going to substitute that with artificially sweetened beverages. And there's a new study out. We, we kind of talked about it off air, but basically it's pretty clear now that artificial sweeteners are probably not metabolically inert. We don't know if it's a good or bad sort of thing or just neutral, but they're certainly better than sugar sweetened beverages. So we have to look at everything in terms of like a hierarchy of importance, right? So if somebody is in a house that's on fire and you would like to get them out, but it's cold outside, you don't keep them in the house that's on fire because they don't have a jacket. Like, Get them out of the burning house and then worry about the fact that it's cold outside. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like the same deal with adherence is people get so caught up in these nuances. It's like the reason all these different diets didn't work for you isn't because they don't work at all. It's because you, you weren't consistent with it. You didn't stick to it. And I'm not saying that in a very like – I'm not saying that in a victim shaming sort of way. Uh, what I'm saying is we hear all the time somebody will say – like you'll hear the following – I tried every different diet and then I tried keto and it felt like I wasn't even dieting and it just was easy, right? And you'll hear people that say that about time-restricted eating and you'll hear people that say that about flexible dieting or you know any other diet under the sun, right? So if you want to lose fat, you have to use some form of restriction. But you as the individual should probably select the form of restriction that feels the least restrictive to you as an individual. And also understand that just because it feels less restrictive for you means absolutely nothing about how it will feel for the person next to you. When I first started doing flexible dieting, I had this issue where like, I mean, I was from the early 2000s bodybuilding crew. So it was like, eat clean, bro, right? So I would try to eat clean, whatever the hell that meant during the week. And I was a college student and I'm just fine on the weekends when I'm hanging out with my buddies. I basically binge eat because I had such – I had restricted myself so much. When I had any of the bad food, I was like, well, I already blew my diet. Might as well have as much as I want. So when I started flexible dieting and just kind of tracking my macros, adherence became so easy for me because I was like, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to cut out any one particular food. I can have what I want. I just got to control portion size. That felt extremely easy to me. I have had – Zero issues with compliance, really. I mean, my wife actually remarked a few years ago, I dropped down a weight class in powerlifting and lost 30 pounds. And her exact words were, I am disgusted by how easy this was for you. I'm like, yeah, I just, I just do it. I'm hungry sometimes, but it doesn't feel really hard. So I thought, oh, well, that's my experience. And like an idiot, I was like, well, this will work for everybody, right? Like I've solved the obesity crisis. And turns out that for some people, 
tracking calories and trying to fit in treats and all that kind of, is actually more restrictive, feels more restrictive than just if they did some kind of like, you know, restriction of carbohydrate or restriction of fat or, you know, time restricted eating or whatever have you. So that appears to be very individual in terms of what works for the individual. And I think this is a good like segue to kind of get into the calories in, calories out. Are all calories created equal? Because, you know, we've talked about that in order to to lose weight, there needs to be some form of restriction that's easiest to adhere to. And then I think within that the context of that conversation, somebody will say, well, are you saying that I can just eat like 2000 calories of crap and lose weight? Or do I have to eat like healthier foods? And I guess there's a lot of nuance to this. Like, for example, like, why is it that like for me, if I eat, like I just, for instance, I just ate some bison and some broccoli for dinner and I feel great, but I know myself. And if I were to eat like two slices of pizza and some French fries, I would have felt bloated. I probably would have felt like crap. And I think a lot of people experience that. So maybe we can unpack like, are all calories created equal? And why do some foods like make us feel more like shit than others, I guess? So all calories are created equal because calorie is simply a unit of measurement. Sorry, I'm a real big pedantic stickler for this one. So, so like saying all calories aren't created equal would be like saying all seconds on a clock are not equal. So all calories are equal, but all sources of calories may not have equal effects in terms of energy expenditure, satiety, as you mentioned, how you feel. So for example, we know that unprocessed, also high protein sources of food they tend to have a greater thermic effect of food and increase energy expenditure. So no, those sources are, are not equivalent to say like just a tub of lard, which fat has zero to 3% of a thermic effect of food, whereas protein is probably closer to 20 to 30%, but it probably depends on the individual protein source. So no, the individual sources are, are not uh, the same. And like something like vegetables or things that are high in fiber, it's less clear if they have an effect on energy expenditure, they might, possibly through the production of short-chain fatty acids, but they certainly seem to have an effect on satiety, right? So when Simon talks about like pulling different levers, you know, protein and fiber are pretty big levers to pull when it comes to energy expenditure and satiety. So no, you know, eating a diet of, you know, just Skittles and, you know, whatever other false dichotomy people want to say versus like vegetables and lean meats. No, it's not the same, but I don't know anybody who just eats Skittles. Like these ridiculous scenarios people come up with, it's kind of like you have the flexibility to eat the things you want, but you also got to not be an idiot about it, right? So I think that kind of the 80-20 rule of 80% of the time you're eating minimally processed, whole food. I, I cringe when I use terms like these just because I hate nebulous terms, but whole food sources of for your calories. And then 20%, you know, the flexibility to fit in treats and things that you like. You know, I think that's a pretty decent rule. And I will say, Doug, I try to... I don't want to minimize, you know, people say, well, I feel you know, bloated after this sort of thing, whatnot. There could be a few different things going on, like especially people who like feel bloated after certain types of foods. There could be, I know it's popular to say, and it tends to be overblown, but like food intolerances, 
lactose intolerances, or just like a greater sodium intake, especially with something like pizza, you've got quite a bit of sodium in there that's gonna make you feel a little bit fuller, you know, that sort of thing. And then also just like the, the placebo effect of feeling like, okay, I'm eating this quote unquote unhealthy food, so there's kind of that expectation, and then you feel bad afterwards, it's difficult, it can be difficult to unpack like how much of that is physiological versus psychological. But I think in general, trying to, the messaging it should be, yes, try to get the majority of your calories from minimally processed, high fiber, lean proteins, and then, you know, some starches, fruits are obviously great. And then with the 20% that's left over, it's fine to have, you know, some, like I have ice cream every night. Like if you told me I had to go without ice cream, I'm probably out to be honest. <laughs> so that's a treat that I fit in every day, right? But I also fit in like a lot of servings of fruits and vegetables as well. I think Lane did a great job answering that. So I'm not sure I have too much more to add. Kind of just agree with everything there that calorie is a, a unit of energy. So sometimes we're getting confused. I think people are kind of, they think they're saying something, but they're saying something other than what they think when they say a calorie is not a calorie. They're kind of tripping themselves up there. And I think they're more specific, more specifically speaking to the source of those calories, as Lane said, and is there a difference in terms of the, the effect that those sources of calories have on physiology? Um, and there can be, you know, I could add another example, which will trigger people on Twitter that, that kind of are fighting the, against polyunsaturated fats. There's good randomized control data, for example, Doug looking at, and this is in a, a calorie surplus situation, which is another interesting thing because it might be that this, the, the source of the calories matters more when you're eating in a surplus. And that's often overlooked, but there is a trial, for example, looking at in a calorie surplus, Doug, is there a difference between getting your calories from saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fats? A gram of, of saturated fat has the same amount of energy as a gram of polyunsaturated fat, right? So we could say that the energy is the same, but it's coming from a different source, different type of fat. And in this study, they, they showed that despite the same total calorie consumption, Doug, when people were getting these extra calories from saturated fat as opposed to polyunsaturated fat, they had increased liver fat development, which causes or can, you know, is, leads to insulin resistance in the liver and can affect your blood glucose levels. And they also saw in that arm of the study, and I think this was, I think it was about eight, eight weeks study. In that eight weeks, the saturated fat also had a significant increase in ApoB, which again is that marker of cardiovascular disease I spoke about before. So again, just, just highlighting that we can consume the same amount of energy from different foods and those different foods or nutrients can have that are providing that energy can have a differing effect on our physiology and just to bring that full circle because this can become quite complicated for people who are kind of just trying to make sense of what a healthy diet is just go back to what lane said about an overall dietary pattern and eating that high fiber diet with lean sources of protein and trying to have less ultra processed foods than the current standard diet these are all really good big levers the kind of the the big bucket type things to be focusing on for the average person who as you say this can get very very 
um, complex very quickly and can become overwhelming and hard from an adherence point of view. So those are kind of the mainstay, I guess, items that we want people to, to kind of be focusing on. To think of your nutritional intake like a budget, right? And the greater your energy expenditure, the greater your budget is going to be. Okay, so this is going to come across as cocky, but I'd like to think I have more lean mass than the average person. I know people on YouTube will say that I'm small and I don't even lift, but you know, hey. So I have quite a bit of lean mass. I train very hard. Typically, I train at least two hours in a day. Sometimes it's closer to two and a half or three. Uh, and so people will look at my calories. I eat, to maintain my body weight, I eat about 3,400 calories a day, which actually I think is about seems pretty reasonable. I wouldn't even say that that's that high for, for somebody of my lean mass uh, and how much I train. But some people will look at those and go, oh man, you're so lucky. And, you know, I, I, I like I, I had a gal, you know, oh man, I'd love to have macros like that. And I look at her, I'm like, okay, well, you're about 60 kilos and you, how much do you train? Okay, four days a week, 45 minutes of those sessions, which is great. Like I'm not shaming that person at all. But I think there's like this disconnect that, oh, this is just a genetic thing. There is some genetic variability in your basal metabolic rate as well as your daily energy expenditure, absolutely. But for the most part, for 70, 80% of us, differences in BMR really don't explain much. And they certainly don't explain the obesity crisis because on average, people who are obese have, when you standardize for lean mass, they have just as much or greater energy expenditure than lean people. So that doesn't explain. And the same goes for people with type 2 diabetes as well. So when I say it's like a budget, what I mean is if you have a high amount of energy expenditure, like me, if I'm eating 3,400 calories a day, I can easily get a lot of fiber in, polyunsaturated fats, high quality protein, and have calories to spare, right? And so if I want to play a little bit with you know, something else, I can do that. It's kind of like if you make a million bucks in a year and you're, you know, you're paying your mortgage, you're putting money away for retirement, you're paying your utilities, you're meeting your responsibilities. If you want to blow, you know, a hundred grand on a sports car, can you do that and not really feel bad about it? Well, of course you can, right? Like if, as, long, as long as you're reasonable with your other expenditures, but can you afford a hundred thousand dollar sports car and a private jet and like all these other, no, you can't, you know, like there is a limit. So if you're judicious in some areas, you can have more flexibility in others. And the same goes for food. So if I'm, I'm somebody who like, I know I want that ice cream for me once a day. So I may not have as big of a serving of rice or pasta. And I may not have like a serving of, you know, nuts or peanut butter or something like that to shift my budget so that I can accommodate that, right? But I'm still having a lot of fruits and vegetables, high quality lean protein, omega-3 fats, polyunsaturated fats, that sort of thing. I can just add this. Now, if I'm getting ready for a bodybuilding show, for example, and like the, I think the lowest my calories have ever been were 1,900 for a bodybuilding show. Talk about miserable. I, don't, I no longer have that flexibility. Sure, I could have some ice cream, but it's probably a really bad idea because it's about 30% or 40% of my daily carbohydrate and fat intake, and it's not gonna be that satiating. So that's like, you know, let's just take loans out of it, but that's like, you know, if I made, you know, 150 grand a year, 
I'm gonna go blow a hundred grand on a sports car and now I can't pay my mortgage and I can't pay my utilities. Well, that's probably a pretty bad idea, right? So I really try to look at it in terms of an overall budget in that sense. What's up everybody, it's Doug. And this concludes part one of my recent discussion with Simon and Lane. I hope y'all enjoyed it as much as I did and be sure to stay tuned for part two, which comes out on Thursday.